I'm not surprised it's a challenge all the time, but I think it's an exciting adventure story. I think all of that still holds. And I think the characters come alive on the page. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Sergio Troncoso is our guest today. He is a writer, obviously, because we're going to be talking about his book. He teaches fiction and nonfiction at the Yale Writers Workshop. He is the past president of the Texas Institute of Letters. He is a judge for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and New Letters Literary Award in Essays. And Sergio's work has appeared in Texas Highways, the Houston Chronicle, CNN, New Letters, the Yale Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Texas Monthly Mag, and many, many other places. Sergio is also the author of eight books, the most recent of which is Nobody's Pilgrim. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Before we talk about your book, we're going to talk about the book that you chose, which is, drumroll please, none other than Huckleberry Finn by Markleberry Twain. Did I say that right? <laughs> Came out in 1884. And when this book came out, it made quite a splash. It was initially banned. The first library to ban it was Concord, Massachusetts. And they said that it was trash, suitable only for slums. 30, 50 years later, Ernest Hemingway says, all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. But this was the period in American literature where we were getting famous by writing books about suicide by fish. So I don't know how much we're going to take Ernest Hemingway's word for that. It is the most challenged book in history, according to the American Library Association. The N-word occurs 200 times in this book. They made a 2011 version with the N-word changed to slave, which I guess is better. And it is called the first true American novel. Jane Smiley, another guest on the podcast, says that it's a beautiful book that falls apart in the last act. And having reread it recently, I would kind of agree. It is an American classic, but Sergio, welcome to the podcast. And why did you pick this book? I've loved the adventures of Huckleberry Finn for many years and Mark Twain in particular. I probably consider myself as much of a Southern writer, having grown up in Texas. And, you know, what I loved about Huckleberry Finn was the adventure quality of it. I'd love that the protagonists were young, that they were facing moral questions, moral dilemma, you know, Huck Finn, whether to help Jim or not, and how he starts seeing Jim as more of a human figure over time through the novel. That was very appealing to me. And in fact, the, the novel that I eventually ended up writing, Nobody's Pilgrims, was always called My Adventure Novel for that reason. Another thing that I've always found very appealing about The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is that the use of vernacular, it's Huck's point of view in first person, and you really get a sense of Mississippi, and that era from Huck's voice. And I think that was very difficult, very, in many ways, revolutionary to do, to say that the grittiness, the, you know, I would say in Spanish, los de abajo, the underdogs, the disenfranchised, have a place in literature, have a place to teach us about morality or teach us about adventures or character. And all of this stuff is, of course, themes that are very important to me. You know, I mean, I grew up working class poor in Texas, right next to Mexico, in Isleta. And one of my major projects was always 
getting these working class characters and their language into literature. And it mattered to me to do that. And of course, what Mark Twain did with Huckleberry Finn was probably the earliest manifestation of that. Well, Dickens. Well, Dickens too. But, you know, I think Dickens never used that sort of heavy vernacular protagonist. I mean, he didn't do it in the first person. Right. But I think part of Dickens' charm was the characters all spoke in their own sort of language and they all had the music of whatever accent they would have had in England. And I mean, maybe this is the first example of a novel that has that in the first person. But I mean, the word Dickensian was probably already in the dictionary by the time this book came out. Sorry, I I totally cut you off. And the reason I cut you off, Sergio, is because I had a quite an experience reading this book as an adult because I had not read it since I was a child. And there were some things in it that really kind of horrified me. But I'll save that. Let me let you finish. (laughs) You know, there, there are certain things that, of course, don't play well from today's point of view. And there's a lot of things that I certainly wouldn't do that way as well. But, you know, I I read all sorts of things written hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago, that I know the times have changed and what's accepted has changed. I think Margaret Atwood said that very clearly, I think, in one of her speeches. She said, fiction is what you can get away with on the page. But what you can get away with on the page changes with time. And I think that's very true. You know, and I think the adventures of Huckleberry Finn are probably the case in point in that. But that doesn't mean sort of I I don't marvel at the language and at the vernacular usage, at the characterizations of Huck and how trying to get into this boy's point of view and mentality on slavery, on Jim, and how he starts morphing into another way of looking at Jim, even through his heavily racist and stereotypical views of blacks and slaves. But, you know, you're trying to go back in time, in many ways, as a modern reader, to see, well, what was conservative back then? What was radical back then? How did people view this book? I'm not surprised it's a challenge all the time, but I think it's an exciting adventure story. I think all of that still holds. And I think the characters come alive on the page whether that you like them or not, even the Duke and the two sort of grifters toward the end, I think come alive on the page. And I, for all of those reasons, I liked it. But for me, it was the basic framework, which is, you know, this young kid is escaping his life, escaping his family, trying to become who he is. And he doesn't even know who he is, but he's just rolling the dice, taking off. And along the way, he befriends Jim, the slave, and others, but Jim is the principal relationship with Huck. And all of this friendship prompts Huck, I think, to have a lot of questions about what is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing to do? Is he a friend? What is a friend? Even though this friend may look very different, have a completely different point of view, but how do I connect with him on a human level? And I think all of that, for me, still makes the book resonate. So, I mean, a very easy and light and meaningless criticism of the book is that it doesn't hold up to today's standards. I mean, of course it doesn't. It was written in 1884 and it was the book that it was at that time. And that's totally reasonable. I mean, if you read it with modern eyes, yeah, it's, you know, if you read anything with modern eyes, like I mean, right. this is a world in which slavery was in living memory. It was a completely different planet. And there is, I think, a criticism to be made about that Huck learning 
that Jim is a human being over the course of the book is kind of a hollow lesson today, but it wasn't at the time. And that was one of the reasons that the book was banned at the time was that it painted formerly enslaved people as a little bit too human and a little bit too colorful. So it's the exact opposite reason why it's challenged today. The thing about it that made it hard for me to read was thinking about being a black teenager in a school today and having to read this book and being told by an authority figure that this is a great depiction of an American literature, which, you know, I mean, it is. I mean, it's it's a beautifully written book. It is an interesting story. But if you just look at the book from the perspective of Jim, if you just imagine the events in this book from Jim's perspective, it is a straight up horror movie. Jim does absolutely nothing wrong, gets swept up in the malfeasance of this little miscreant kid, ends up doing the most illegal thing you can do in his life, which is running away and escaping down the river, is tortured at every turn by every person he encounters. I mean, mm -hmm. Huck, one of the first things he does is put a dead snake on Jim while he's sleeping to attract another rattlesnake. And he plays all these tricks on them. And at the end of the book, where Tom Sawyer enters the picture, they go through this elaborate play to satisfy Tom Sawyer's imagination that is entirely at the expense of Jim and almost gets him killed and almost gets him shot. And we find out after all that, that Jim has been a free man this whole time. Right. He's being used. And I, I did not get any of that when I read it in high school because I yeah. didn't think about it from Jim's perspective. And I didn't think about it from the perspective of, you know, if you're a black kid reading this, maybe you won't identify with that character. Maybe you'll identify with Huck just because he's your age, but that's got to be in the back of your mind. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even think about the story from Jim's perspective the first time I read it. But this time it's, I mean, you literally could make a horror movie that is just the story of Huckleberry Finn from Jim's perspective, and it would chill people to the bone. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any question that Jim is used that, you know, is he a fully formed character with independence or even respect sometimes vis-a-vis -vis Huck? I would say no. I agree with you. It is horrifying to look at it that way. And it's a question that I would ask Mark Twain, you know, if somehow he were alive and I could talk to him. You know, I don't know the, the time period, the mentality, the culture that it was coming out of as well. I'm not sort of a cultural historian, but I, I kept thinking, you know, is this too conservative in the in the way that it's gently bringing Huck to see that Jim is human, that Jim, you know, has feelings, that Jim deserves his own integrity? You know, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't know if there was such hostility in the South where Twain was writing, or, and maybe even yeah. New York City for all you know, where the publishing industry was still there, you know, if he really had to be this genteel in making Huck see Jim's humanity. So, I mean, I, but I see it, but for me, it seems like baby steps. And I kept thinking, Twain, you know, why are you taking baby steps? Why are you being so careful? You know, and of course it's modernized, right? I mean, it's, it's how we have seen our society develop that we can't help but see it that way. And, and I don't know how you get beyond that. So we had a historian named Robert K. Sutton on the podcast, and he's, he's a Civil War historian. He's written a bunch of books and knows everything about it. And I asked him some version of this question about what was conservative and what was like sort of a radical position at the time. And this really was kind of radical at the time, even though by today's standards, a 
young boy coming to realize that black people are human is almost comically horrific as a plot point right at the time it was kind of revolutionary and i mean it's easy to forget where we were as a country i mean the civil war had just ended we were in reconstruction when this came out and it was in the 1860s in new york city in the most liberal of liberal societies a reasonable position was that slavery was okay in the states that it was currently in but it should not expand into new territories that was like a moderate left position at that time because slavery was the backbone of the economy and there was no way we were going to get rid of it without fighting a war which is exactly what happened so i don't know what there is to be gained by judging a book by the standards of today right but I guess the question I kept asking myself is, should this book be taught in high schools? Because it is still. Well, it shouldn't be taught alone. Yeah. I think what you should do is have responses to Huckleberry Finn, even if they're modern responses, you know, books by African-Americans that were happening at the time as well as after Huckleberry Finn, so that you put the book in context. Sure. And even have someone severely criticize the book. And what it meant to African-Americans and the society that they were trying to escape and reform. You know, you don't want to teach it by itself. And I think that would be the only antidote to reading something like Huck Finn. But for me, for example, like, you know, as I am horrified while they're using Jim toward the end, one thing you pointed out, you know, how Tom Sawyer basically lies and doesn't tell them, oh, Jim's been a free slave. I just wanted to play it out. Yeah, let's let's remind the reader, if you forgot this book, that what happens is they go down the river for a while. They have a lot of adventures and all of it is very entertaining and very well written, right. and really cool. Huck Finn and Jim are really developing as a duo. Right. And it's sort of, it sort of seems like it's leading towards manumission and some kind of lifelong friendship. And, you know, they learn a lot, a little something. And then they stop at a town that's downriver and Tom Sawyer enters the picture because they accidentally end up at Tom Sawyer's aunt's house. Right. And Tom Sawyer enters the picture and just takes over the narrative. It's like he showed up and hijacked the book. And all of a sudden, Huck Finn and Jim have no more agency. And what Tom Sawyer wants to do is free Jim because Jim is stuck in this house. But Tom Sawyer just doesn't know. I mean, it's just stupid kids doing stupid stuff. Right. What really could happen is Jim could just walk out of there and nobody would care. But Tom Sawyer goes through this elaborate plot and it takes them weeks. And one of them gets shot. They end up on an island for days and they have to call a doctor and it's it's a whole situation but this entire time that tom sawyer is making jim go through all this jim is free tom sawyer is holding a letter that is the key to jim's freedom that he doesn't turn over because he wants to do this weeks-long torturous cosplay with jim right and and, and tom is the one who ends up getting shot because yeah. of this cosplay yeah good you little fucker i right. mean <laughs> you know he should have got shot in both legs I think that is where the novel, you know, you could say, well, it took a turn for the worse. I mean, how I read it was simply because I took the, the novel the way it was rather than try to rewrite it in my head is that, you know, Twain is talking about storytelling, talking about the power of storytelling, even in creating fantasies in which you actually act out things that are truly dangerous, like Tom's going to get shot, like Jim might get hurt and all of this cosplay, and he's already been free, but Tom wants to play it out the way it's supposed to be in an adventure story. So I took it as sort of the power of storytelling sort of run amok. Huh. You know, when, when Tom Sawyer is trying to 
get Jim to escape in the right storytelling fashion. It's kind of crazy. It's cruel. And it's dangerous, especially for Tom, who ends up the one being shot because of his stupidity. And and it's certainly abusing Jim and abusing actually Huck, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he gets caught up in Tom's ideas and can't really seem to counteract Tom. Whatever Tom says, they, that's what they follow. So I, I saw it as sort of the power of storytelling run amok and hmm. the danger that can happen but also the possibility that it gets people to do crazy shit and sometimes dangerous shit that ends up biting you in the ass, the person who wanted the story, who wanted the adventure, and you thought it was just for an adventure's sake, but then you end up getting shot, you know, because of this cosplay, as you call it, towards the end. It doesn't really seem to fit in the novel other than almost like in a meta way to go back and look at storytelling itself and the power it has to propel boys' imagination. And without that sort of imagination, would you even have the adventures of Tom Sawyer or the adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Because for me, that's sort of the reason, if there's any kind of reason, for what Tom does toward the end. It's almost a commentary on storytelling and books and its power and danger and stupidity, all in the same awful little mix. That's a great take. So it's like a sort of Mark Twain's meta analysis and that, you know, maybe the idea of, yeah, maybe all of the ideas that we have about what reality is could be questioned in light of like, what are the stupid circles we're running around in just to fit some narrative that is arbitrary. Right. I mean, that's how I read it, that Twain commenting on his own book and storytelling, and probably he was seeing the craziness it had unleashed. (laughs) <laughs> you know, which could lead to real violence. Right, because he was like about the most famous writer around at this time. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes much more sense. I mean, I just read it as like, why is this little psychopath like unleashed on this story <laughs> seemingly at random? And, it, you know, it kind of felt to me like the end of Shakespeare's Cymbeline, where, you know, Cymbeline is a lesser known Shakespeare play. And for good reason, it's a beautiful play that is a tragedy until the final scene where it seems like some producer just decided they needed everything to resolve. And so it's this beautifully set up tragedy that ends with God coming down from nowhere, fixing everything and marrying everybody. And that's kind of how I felt in the last third of this book. It was like set up for Jim and uh, Huck to have to escape some kind of horrible slavery situation and Jim to get his freedom or whatever. And then Tom Sawyer just comes in and like hijacks the book, just completely changes it. But that's really interesting that, you know, Tom Sawyer, I guess, in analyzing this, Tom Sawyer, like these are all fictional characters. <laughs> these are all Twain's fictional characters. Tom Sawyer is just one of the panoply of people that are across the Tom Sawyer books and the Huck Finn books. I guess I kind of got swept away in the story. Right. And and forgot that like, oh yeah, the, this whole thing is made up. It wasn't a real story until Tom Sawyer got into it. Exactly. And, and in my mind, like if it had ended with, oh, Jim is free and Huck, you know, escapes to the Indian territory. It just, for me, would be too pat of an ending, too nice and tidy. And I think Twain is a bomb thrower. I think Twain loves to throw bombs at even himself and the storytellers and the danger that they bring in in writing these novels. He's almost trying to undermine his own storytelling abilities and the power that storytelling has to take you all sorts of places, good places as well as crazy places. Yeah, I guess there is something to be gained in today's world 
of getting into the heads of people who were living through slavery. While it was really hard to read that stuff and to just have Huck casually dismiss Jim as a subhuman, Huck and everyone else. Right. That's how people in the South at that time, some of them thought. Yeah, I guess there is some value in remembering today that that was not so far away and it's possible and maybe even likely that we see things that in a hundred years people are going to think of as horrible and ridiculous and to us they're commonplace. And, and I think it's it's a little bit too pat to kind of say, oh, we're great now, we, we're enlightened. I mean, this kind of racist shit is happening, you know, in politics right now, yeah. in other ways, in the South and other places. And so it's history, but also present in yeah. all sorts of ways. We never really get away from it. I mean, I'm I'm Mexican, but, you know, are Mexicans all drug dealers and crazy marauders invading our country? I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. It's only you can move the needle a little bit, you can improve it a little bit, but this is still a country riven by racial, ethnic, and, you know, class divisions. Before we move on, I just want to say that Mark Twain, as if addressing some of my criticism, a hundred years before my birth, said that I wrote Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn for adults exclusively, and it always distresses me when I find that boys and girls have been allowed to access them. I agree. I mean, and in fact, Nobody's Pilgrims has three 17-year-old protagonists, but it is adult fiction. You know, and it's always been labeled as adult fiction, but I wanted teenage protagonists in this adult novel. We'll be back next week with Sergio Troncoso, who wrote Nobody's Pilgrims. We're going to talk about his book, Nobody's Pilgrims, by Cinco Puntos Press. came out 2022. My copy is still warm, hot off the presses. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. The episode you just heard was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I live in Los Angeles where um, I wouldn't describe the Mexicans around here as marauders. <laughs> They're just, you know, the people well, who live here. Neither would I. <laughs>